0: Support for Design Matters comes from Adobe Portfolio. With Portfolio, which comes free with any Adobe Creative Cloud Plan, you can quickly and simply build a website to showcase your creative work so you can get back to doing what you do best. Start today at myportfolio.com slash designmatters. Proceeds from Adobe Portfolio support of this podcast will go into a student scholarship for the School of Visual Arts Master's in Branding program. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. This episode of Design Matters is part of a series featuring new voices in design, and Debbie Millman talks with Joe Hollier about an invention of his that's designed to bring back boredom in the era of the smartphone.
1: Those little moments of boredom that would naturally happen throughout my day, going underground or going on an airplane. You know, that was when you had ideas
0: happen. Here's Debbie Millman.
1: Joe Hollier is
2: a a filmmaker and animator. B a designer. C a collage artist. Or D one of the inventors of the light phone? The answer is E everything, all of the above, and a lot more. And the irksome thing is, he's well under 30. How does this happen? Well, that's what we're going to find out. Joe Hollier joins me to talk about his various projects and endeavors. Joe, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. The first thing I want to ask you about is your relationship with hip-hop artist Yellow Wolf. What is that about?
1: Yellow Wolf's a good friend of mine. Uh, I met him senior year of college, started working with him on his clothing company. And then when I graduated and had no idea what I was doing with my life, it sort of organically happened that I went on tour with him for a couple of months. And we've sort of stayed friends ever since.
2: And what did you do when you were on tour with
0: him?
1: It was supposed to be video documenting. uh, So basically making live Videos of the week before, the couple of days before, to promote the future events of the tour. But it was kind of like wingman, best friend. I want to go get sushi. I need someone to hoard off the people. So partner in crime. Yeah, it was just yeah fun. You know, if he needed a design or something, so it was just kind of like creative hand uh, helper.
2: Now I read that when you were a little kid, you wanted to be an astronaut, and then. When you realized you couldn't afford space camp, you decided you wanted to be a politician. And I didn't know there was a space camp. There's a space camp where you can learn how to be an astronaut?
1: I'm pretty sure that's what the commercials on Nickelodeon always showed. But
0: (laughs) now now you're making me doubt whether (laughs) or not there even
1: was a space camp. But uh, yeah, I remember seeing it on TV. My aunt worked for NASA, so I was always sort of space obsessed. Still? Still? Yeah, I actually found this Flickr album. It's kind of the most amazing thing ever. And basically someone from outside Kennedy Space Center somewhere in Florida went there and re-scanned all of the Hasselblad photos from all the Apollo missions. And it's like hundreds or thousands of photos. And like, you know, the, the crappy ones that are out of focus of the astronauts looking out the window, like the, not the normal dozen that you've seen. And to see like 12 like, of the same person, it's just like, wow, that's real. You can't, you know, it it really, and, like, you look at the side of the ship and it's like, is that (laughs) tinfoil? It's it's really quite creepy. It's it's a trip. It's fun.
2: So after you realized you couldn't go to space camp, you wanted to be a politician, and I understand you went to a slew of youth in government events and met quite a lot of politicians. It's so hard for me to imagine you at a youth in government event.
1: Oh, yeah. Model United Nations and youth and government, they kind of, one was fall, one was spring. I just really like to go and debate. Uh, Model UN was like pretending you're shea cells and fighting against these sort of European powers to pass laws. But youth and government was fun because it was like I got to propose laws that I thought were sort of common sense, like the one I really fought for, which said that skateboarding would be At your own responsibility, you could never sue for falling on a skateboard because every time you went skateboarding, people are like, oh, I let you skate, but, you know, it's a liability or trying to get a skate park for your hometown and the insurance is out the roof. So I wanted to make it so you could just, at my own risk, don't make me wear a helmet and don't, I'm not going to sue. Skateboarders don't sue. Skateboarders' parents sue. You stated that you realized you didn't want to be a politician
2: when you realized they're the worst people alive. I probably did say something like that. (laughs) And I was wondering if you had a bad experience that led you to believe that, aside from the obvious political climate we're now in. This was quite a while ago. But what made you decide that?
1: My hometown, Cranford, New Jersey, tried to open a skate park there. We actually had a generous old man willing to donate a couple hundred thousand dollars to build a new basketball court in skate park and I had the whole town pretty much petition against the skate park saying that we were all dog collar wearing punks that did graffiti and you know smoke crack or whatever they said.
2: Well up until the smoke crack part I thought well there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you started a skateboarding company in high school was that five on that the company that it you evolved ultimately... into five
1: on that yeah I wanted to make a video so I got a crappy camera and we didn't know what we were doing and we filmed ourselves skateboarding and then it was like, Oh, we have this video and like we should make a name for it. And then like, oh, we should print t-shirts. So we opened up Microsoft Paint, ironed on t shirts, and then I was like, Oh, you should learn how to screen print and we should make a website. And it kind of organically led to making skateboards, becoming a graphic designer, and not really realizing that what I was doing was graphic design.
2: You no longer live in the suburbs of Cranford, New Jersey. Thankfully. Um, You said that um, doing anything untraditional wasn't accepted as something you could do and that everyone seemed bored. Is that something that you really attribute to the suburbs, or is it something that you would attribute to
1: non-creative people? I guess the suburbs was really what I knew, but I'm, I'm sure the two are the same. There maybe is just a lot more non-creative people within the suburbs or something, but I definitely was in the suburbs that I've always felt like I was fighting to try to be who I wanted to be or do what I wanted to do. And from parents to school, it was just kind of like... <laughs>
2: Well, here you are. You're in your mid-20s. You graduated from the School of Visual Arts just a few years ago. And I still remember you sitting in one of my classes as a student. And you are now one of print magazine's new visual artists, which is a, a hard thing to win. Having been a judge, I know how many applications come in. You were recently named one of the Art Directors Club's Young Guns, which is also quite a competitive competition, and you've started your own company. You're one of the most gentle, self-effacing, sincere people I've ever met, certainly one of the most sincere students I've ever had. And I think most people see... People coming out of school that have this tremendous early success as being really aggressive or really ambitious or very cutthroat. You couldn't be further from that archetype. So can you share with people the journey that you've taken to get to this really rarefied place that very few
1: people at your age ever get to? I think... uh... I did not want to do anything advertising related. And I had all these morals and sort of big overarching things, you know, but then again, you leave college and you're like, I have to pay rent. And so immediately out of college, the first thing I did was a White Castle commercial where I like, they turned my head into a cheeseburger and I was riding a skateboard and it was for Bob Giraldi and, you know, finding little random jobs that didn't feel like soul-crushing too much uh, but that would you know pay some sort of money and then spending all of my time working on things that were meaningful to me so like making collages or paintings and really just kind of investing in that and and not wanting new clothes not wanting a bigger apartment not having health insurance for (laughs) 10 years it's like putting all those aside and just really being selfish in a way I guess if that's how you define selfish, it seems like selfless, not
2: having any of the basic comforts that often numb us to those other things that we want to do. I mean, when I graduated college, I actually took the opposite path because I was so worried about being self-sufficient. I took anything I could take, anything I could get just to be able to survive because I didn't have any faith at all in my creativity, my abilities, And felt like the only thing that I could fall back on was some trade skill that anybody could do. But at least I'd get paid to do it. I'd be the one getting paid to do it. So it does take some sense of belief in yourself to be able to make that choice. You have to rely on yourself no matter what.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's hard to feel that I believed in myself in retrospect. But I definitely believed in something strong, and I was wanting to change things and not just sort of fall in line and become content, and I had a angst of fire. Yeah. What, what does
2: content mean to you?
1: Content was sort of, I guess, how I saw my parents. They're like the happiest, simple life people that are just so content, and I just was never able to get there, for better or worse. Would you want to? Yeah, I look at my parents, and they're just, like, so happy. But in, in many ways, it's like they just, they're content with so little. Um, and I've always wanted more. I want to adventure. I want to go skateboard there. I want to go take photos there. I want this camera. Like, So I did want things. I wanted experiences. And I've always sort of felt that, you know, life is just really, really short. And my parents are kind of super religious. So they're content with, well, there's heaven. So, you know, live life calmly and then heaven. And that never really settled well. So I was always kind of like, live, 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 live. What do they think of your work now? They think Joey makes pictures on the computer in New York City.
2: (laughs) Fair (laughs) enough. Let's talk about some of those pictures you make in New York City. Talk about the first fulfilling, heartwarming project that you did after school. How did you go about getting it? What was it? What did you do?
1: I think the Yellow Wolf Tour was probably the first thing I did. And although the work itself, actually, I'm not. Crazy proud of. Like, I had a great time, but I think it was the experience of it that was just so thrilling, like, you know, doing something I could have never predicted ever. And it was just so much more about the seeing and getting out of my shell. Like, you know, that really set a tone for, like, now I can't just settle for (laughs) anything else. And so, what was
2: next after that?
1: So, I just sort of started freelancing. I remember I helped Jessica Walsh uh, with her play animations. So, that was pretty good because that was actually like, somewhat seen in the world and was able to help me because I was always really bad at sort of putting myself out there and almost felt guilty to try to like make a portfolio website and be like check out my work or
2: why would it make you feel guilty
1: I don't know it just I was, I've never been good at that it, it feels like wrong to try to show off or something.
2: Now, you, you talk about working for Jessica Walsh like, I'm just going to go to Gristidi's and get a sandwich. Jessica Walsh is one of the partners at Sagmeister and Walsh and is one of the people really making some extraordinary work. And to come out of school and work for one of the most acclaimed designers working today is not all that easy. How did that happen?
1: It was- <laughs> Weirdly, very easily. I just, <laughs> Jessica had seen one of my animations on Vimeo or something, and the aesthetic was sort of something that she had in mind. So it's, I mean, pretty organically, honestly. And then you did a lot of work with them, Jessica
2: Walsh and Tim Goodman, for 40 Days of Dating. What was that
1: like for you? It was pretty easy for me because I wasn't obviously partaking in the hard part of <laughs> that project. And the actual so it was kind 40 of Days just, of Dating? Yeah, and I really kind of just assisted them. They had a lot of the concepts already, but it was definitely fun because, you know, just in the nature of working for someone like that or on a project like that, you just know it's going to be seen. And most of my work, I'm so good at keeping it dusty and in the corner of my room, so...
2: (laughs) Let's talk about Paul Sayre. I know he's had a profound influence on you. Paul's my favorite. (laughs) Uh, You worked with him on a video for the band They Might Be Giants. And I want to read something that you've written about that Paul said to you about the kind of work he wanted from you. And he said, okay, go out and film your friend skating through the city and we'll make it a video. And you went out and did the best you could. And when you showed it to John from They Might Be Giants, he said, I want to feel more soul skating and have it not so literal. And then you made those little changes and flipping the scenes around and tweaking and editing, and it was a much better video. And you thought, whoa, a client can actually help. And I think that's where good clients matter. When you see your favorite designer, it's always that they also have the fucking best clients. Not that you want to use that as an excuse, but it's definitely a good thing to find clients you're aligned with and are inspired by or look up to. So Paul is notoriously difficult in that he won't settle and he won't cut corners and he won't make work that he doesn't believe in. Um, So what was that like working with him? Did you ever butt heads on what you thought was good and what he thought was good?
1: I would never say we butt heads per se, as sometimes you would have an idea and I might be like, well, that's maybe not how I would do it. But knowing Paul, you're sort of just trusting a little bit in that like this is going to be a fun journey regardless. When you say yes to Paul, you know that. This could be four or five months for a simple video. I think when he asked me about the first music video, it was an afternoon of shooting, and it was like six months later. We were finally like coming to a final edit. So that's what makes it so profound for me. You know, I worked on the Saturn V project with Paul, and that was one that was sort of very personal to him. Can you, um, can you describe what it was for our listeners? Mm-hmm. Saturn V uh, relaunch, I guess, was the official name, and it was basically Paul attempting to relaunch a model Saturn V rocket that his father had launched, uh, I'm forgetting the years off the top of my head, 30-something years ago. And he was sort of maybe five years old and has these vague memories, but found some pictures in the launch pad. And because his kids had never met his father, he wanted to sort of remake this and take Kickstarter along for the ride. And, you know, the project had a bunch of twists and turns, and I think in some ways a lot of people didn't quite get it, but to be there and experience such a personal project and see someone going so over and beyond for something so personal, and you know, it was just, it was like the best time. And I would go upstate and hang out with him and his mom and his family, and it was like, we really got to become friends. In
2: September, 2014, you participated in the Google Incubator program. It's a 30-week program. What did you do in that program? What exactly is this program?
1: So I was pitched um, the 30 Weeks program. I think I got thrown into a bag of names from SVA. uh, And the idea behind the program is actually kind of amazing. Uh, It came out of the Google Lab, uh, Robert Wong in particular. uh, And it's that everything is design and that if designers were a part of companies from the beginning, uh, you know, the company might build products with more empathy too often products were being made by MBAs and engineers and sort of slapping design on it with a logo as an afterthought. And, you know, they wanted to see that if we gave designers guidance and resources and some sort of community, could they start new companies that solved actual problems? So, you know, it's like, oh wow, that sounds <laughs> amazing. So I, I joined this program and, you know, I knew next to nothing about tech. The last thing I wanted to do was build an app. But it was just kind of too good of an opportunity sounding. And I think at that point in my life, I was starting to sell paintings and collages, but still kind of just monetarily struggling. And, you know, it didn't really bother me, but it was starting to get to the point where it's just like, I want to go travel. I want to do things. And, you know, unfortunately, they all kind of require money. So I was just kind of not sure what I was doing. And I like, I'll just try this and see what happens. I didn't really think I was going to start a company per se.
2: So that's where you met Kai Wei-Tang. What was the first meeting between the two of you like? Sort of imagine it like Paul McCartney and John Lennon kind of thing.
1: There was, I think, 18 of us in the program. uh, And Kai actually met the first night of the program. He stayed late and I was there drinking a beer and he was working really hard on a whiteboard and he was making a business model, like, in and out of value exchange between different parties of a company. And I was like, what the fuck is that? Uh, <laughs> and he patiently sat there and, like, explained to me what the diagram was. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool way to visualize some sort of business thing that I didn't quite understand. But it, it was nothing to do with the light phone. So this was, like, two or three weeks before I even had that idea. So uh, I met him, and he was just incredibly generous And, you know, very reserved, but when he spoke, it was always so smart. (laughs) You know, I asked him what his background was, and he's like, oh, I just went to ID and got a master's in human-centered design, but he never told me that he made cell phones for 10 years before that. So when I told him about the light phone, I actually didn't know that his background (laughs) was making cell phones. Uh, And it was kind of like, oh, dude, you have to help me you have to be my partner.
2: So let's talk about the light phone. How did you get the idea? How did you come up with the name? And where has this journey taken you?
1: In the 30 weeks program, the goal was to two or three times a week pitch a new idea. So I was trying to make a recycling company or all these other companies that were sort of not my problem to actually solve once I really dove into it. You know, we're learning from founders and investors sort of how and why these companies were being funded and What I was seeing kind of scared me. In what way? All the digital products were being built because people could become addicted to them. So that was sort of the goal. You know, there's there's really two ways that a lot of these digital products make money. It was either collecting your data or selling you advertisements or some sort of combination of the two. So either way, they wanted you to be using their products as much as possible. At that point, you must have been, knowing you the
2: way I do, I would imagine that you probably felt a little bit, like it was soul crushing.
1: I mean, I had a moment there one morning, I think I was reading a Jonathan Franzen article or something weird like that. And he was talking about his love for birds and how he hated Twitter, but loved birds or something. I can't quite recall what the article was about. But I remember my stomach like through the floor, just like I felt terrible. And I was like, I need to quit. I made a terrible mistake. And it was kind of out of that feeling that the light phone came. I was like, started thinking like, well, you know, I don't even want a phone anymore. And then I thought, well, the the basic idea of a phone away from phone and would be your sort of second phone. And I told Kaiwei about it. And like I said, he was just sort of the perfect person for me to really dive into and keep bouncing this off of. But I told him and my friend Steven, who was the other person in the program, we all sort of hung out together a lot. You
2: said that you wanted to build something that inspired people to consciously choose to experience quality time without the internet, and you wanted to make that choice feel special. How did that impact the design of the phone?
1: Every aspect of the phone, we said it was designed to be used as little as possible. Even in thinking of form factor, which actually came to us quite quickly, it was like, what is it that everyone carries around with them? It's like a credit card or an ID from my mom to my little brother. That's what everyone would have so I was like okay that's a good form factor so I went down to canal plastic traced out a credit card on a piece of plastic and got like four of these little white credit card shaped blocks that pretty much look kind of like the iPhone now and I was like okay and then what would the interface be and I just sort of slowly built it up from nothing like if I had nothing what would be the least steps and that was really how the, the form factor and interface came to be but in just making it special, it's like, you know, when you leave your smartphone at home and you touch your pocket and you feel a light phone instead, it's like that pet rock almost. That you <laughs> remember that, like, oh, I didn't lose my smartphone in a cab. <laughs> right. I chose to do this to myself.
2: It's so interesting how the arc of your experience with the Internet has influenced How you've come to create this phone and you wrote a piece quite some time ago about your memories of the early days of the Internet and how you'd have to sit in a chair in your living room and you'd be tethered to the modem to your computer and you'd have this time where you went on the Internet and then you signed off and then went about the rest of your life and you've said that we've been granted the ability to edit our messages and conversations and how we present ourselves to our friends and followers. And I'm so concerned now about what that means in our culture, because I think we all have fallen victim to this self-positioning and, and what that means to authenticity and intimacy. And I'm wondering how you're feeling about that these days.
1: We don't even know that we're on the Internet 24-7, like that sort of unconscious. And the light phone wants to make that conscious again, like, I'm off. It might be 15 minutes that I'm going to get a coffee down the street, but the 15 minutes can be profound if I'm looking at the street. You know, I don't need to spend $2,000 and go to Hawaii for two weeks to rest when I'm so tired. I can just, like, right. <laughs> walk down the street sometimes and feel fresh again.
2: You said something really profound You have said one of the hardest things to do is take responsibility of our time at any given moment. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we've become, as a culture, so addicted to and immersed in our
1: devices? It's so much easier to react than to be proactive. If I open up Instagram, I can just react to images and it's stimulating and, you know, I I feel the illusion of productivity or something like that. But it's, it's really just reacting. Uh, whereas, you know, when I go light and I sit there, it's like the hard questions come in. Mm, what are the hard questions? <laughs> what, what am I doing here? What what am I doing with my life? Why is life, you know, <laughs> just really all the questions, you know, who am I? Oh, my God, look at me in that mirror. Like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that we're using the Internet and our devices as
2: distraction I guess it's just... From everything that we're really supposed to be doing or
1: thinking about? It's an escape in a way. It's, you know, I catch myself doing, and this is what freaks me out. It's like, you know, your friend goes to the bathroom and you immediately pull out the phone without thinking. And it's just like those little moments of boredom that would naturally happen throughout my day constantly, you know, going underground or going on an airplane. You know, that was when you had ideas happen that was the boredom spawned creativity you know if i just fill all of those moments up you know reacting to essentially advertisements or you know photos of people that have cooler and more fun lives than me it's like i'm just going to feel bad
2: well that's the whole idea about the issues that especially generation z this new younger generation you're i think a millennial so right below you at the generation zers And they're now being nicknamed Generation D, D for depressed, because what they're ending up doing is comparing what seems to be these perfect lives other people have online, on Instagram, on Snapchat, whatever, and feeling that they're less than. And I'm guilty of that, too. I don't know how we fix that aside from cutting ourselves off from it, which obviously the light phone gives us the opportunity at least briefly to be able to do.
1: It's an opportunity, but it's step one, and and I would say the hardest steps are probably to come after that, you know. You go light, and everyone who's tried a light phone and sort of been experimenting with us from our initial user testing, they express a huge anxiety. You're touching your pocket, you feel different, you feel like you're at the cafe and someone's looking at you like you're a creep. Because you're, you're
2: not doing something. And then you know like when
1: people. you want to look down on your phone so people stop looking at you, you don't have a phone, and everyone else is looking at their phone, so you're making eye contact with a couple of people that are working <laughs> right. and can't look at their phone, and it's, it's really kind of intense until you forget. And There's always this kind of moment where you forget. You just sort of, the FOMO disappears, and you're kind of enjoying being present.
2: After the Accelerator program, you are thinking about actually launching this Light Phone so you do a Kickstarter, you ask for about $100,000, you get about a half a million. What happens next?
1: <laughs> um, Kickstarter was the kind of natural judgment day in a way. You know, let's share this idea and see if it actually resonates. I mean, conceptually, it resonated with a lot of people, but to spend $100 on a phone that does nothing <laughs> was quite the ask. So we launched it. I think our goal was 200000 Within a week, we had hit, sort of hit that goal, And we started to receive press, and that was kind of what blew my mind, was just how universal this problem was. You know, sitting in Brooklyn, noticing me and my friends' habits that, you know, someone across the world in China would be feeling the same anxiety that I was from a completely different walk of life.
2: When do you think that the Light Phone is actually coming to market?
1: October 5th, we're going to have a little celebration here in New York City to kick off our sort of beta. Basically, some of the first Kickstarter backers will finally start shipping phones, and then Assuming things go relatively smooth, mid to late November, we'll be shipping at scale. So,
2: Joe, tell us exactly how your Light Phone works.
1: So, the Light Phone is your phone away from phone. It's basically credit card-sized cell phone. has its own SIM card, so it's not technically tethered like, say, a Bluetooth device. It will work if your smartphone's 3,000 miles away and off. It will still work. Uh, and we've been building this sort of software back-end Uh, There's a smartphone app element to that, and that sort of makes it a seamless extension. So although it's the second phone, it will always use your same phone number. You're able to easily add speed dials from the app, and you basically turn on light mode, go light, and that will trigger your smartphone to forward your calls to your light phone. That's all that will be
2: forwarded, just the phone calls, nothing else.
1: Yeah, and you can actually limit which phone calls. So you can say only my eight speed dials can forward to me is pretty, not that anyone calls anyway. but
2: I know. Well, that was my next question. So few people actually talk on the telephone anymore. that I think the talking part of the telephone
1: is the least used aspect
2: of the telephone
1: now. I want to say I read 90 to 10 percent. I could be wrong. <laughs> and so why
2: do you think people want something like this?
1: Well, I guess it goes back to our sort of philosophy of designed to be used as little as possible we actually don't want you to talk on the phone we're not sort of saying screw texting let's go back to phone calls it's actually (laughs) like let's have nothing but there's that peace of mind that if there's an emergency my mom's going to call me if there's an emergency my roommate can call me so it's really just that little peace of mind but full disconnection is kind of the goal so I sort of imagined myself sitting at the park and like okay well I want to hang out with Connor now and it's like I text Connor and I say, hey, what's up, man? And I wait. You know, I'm not actually there. It's not like 10 seconds and it's over. I'm sort of anxiously waiting. And he might say, hey, what's up? And it's this sort of drawn out thing that might take a little bit. He might get distracted and take an extra couple of minutes. And I was just like, that's not really how I'd want to connect with Connor if I was light. It would be like, hey, Connor, I'm at the park. Want to come? No? Okay, cool. And then, you know, you're sort of, it, was, it just didn't feel in ethos with, with that sort of light mode. Uh, the texting side. Talk about the design of the light phone. It's absolutely beautiful. It's all white. The white was sort of a coincidence in that I was in Canal Plastics, and I saw this white piece of plastic, and I always kind of imagined it being black. And I was like, well, white, that's kind of the opposite of what you think of smartphones. And even when a white smartphone is off, there's this giant black hole on the top. So the fact that the top of it was actually completely blank, and when it's off, because it's meant to be off, There's no sort of seeing of the interface below. That was really kind of the real like magic trick to it that we wanted was that the interface would just show up only when you need to see it. And then it would just be a blank object and it's your pet rock and you can touch it as much as you want and fiddle with it. But there's only ever going to be 10 numbers and a yes or no button. There's no, no other way to get lost. Where will they be sold? I look forward to seeing them in all sorts of non-electronic store places eventually, but from the get-go, we're going to just really do it B2C, lightphone.com, just really try to keep that as as much as possible um, so that it really comes through us in our sort of curated uh, entry point. But who knows, it could be in skateboard shops and Strand bookstores and all sorts of other fun places one day.
2: The last thing I want to talk to you about is how you view your work and your relationship to it. And you said the following, I got into graphic design thinking I wanted a really traditional design job. And then I started to hate that. After that, I got into fine art things and then realized, holy shit, I hate fine art. Then I joined the Light Phone Project and thought the tech world would be cool. There's so much optimism there. And then I realized I hate the tech world. And then I started to realize it was actually me. Suddenly I realized there was good in all these things and all you have to be is in that 5 or 10% that is really just killing it. So my question for you is, how do you get to be in that 5 or 10%? that is actually killing it because, Joe, that's what you're doing.
1: I guess it's like, and this probably sounds so cheesy, but just not selling out And whatever it is. I mean, I look at Paul and it's just like, you know, he still stays so true to designing things he believes in. And, you know, it probably isn't the most financially smart decision to do, but it's like he's making the best work and killing it. And it's like I see the same thing in skateboarding or music and it's like, yeah, you can do that hit radio song or you can do you and, you know, it's a longer ride to success. But I think staying true to what you believe in and not sort of being tempted by that enormous paycheck or needing the likes or the followers. And if if doing what you're doing is enough, then you don't need to feel close enough by having likes and followers and whatever it is. Thank you, Joe.
2: Thank you for thank being you. on Design Matters and good luck with the launch of the Light Phone. I can't wait to feel it in my pocket. You can learn more about Joe Hollier on his website, joehollier.com, and from his portfolio on behance.net. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman and I look forward to talking
0: with you again soon. Support for Design Matters comes from Adobe Portfolio. With Portfolio, which comes free with any Adobe Creative Cloud plan, you can quickly and simply build a website to showcase your creative work so you can get back to doing what you do best. Start today at myportfolio.com slash designmatters. Proceeds from Adobe Portfolio support of this podcast will go into a student scholarship for the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance from Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this podcast in the iTunes store.